privilege. It's a joy to be here. Uh, we are so grateful to be in partnership, you know, in Sovereign Grace and in, with Covenant Fellowship. Thank you guys for loaning Rob out to be our regional leader. He has served us well. And, uh, you, know, we, we, you know, just a little bit about myself. You know, my wife and I, Teresa, we joined Covenant Fellowship in 2010 before we, you know, jumped on the Risen Hope. And so we, we viewed this as kind of, you know, always our sending church and always, in a sense, uh, you know, our, you know, roots and home in a sense. But we are grateful for your prayers, your support and encouragement for us at Risen Hope. So most of you probably don't need me to convince you that this transgender debate is, is important, it's relevant, it's urgent. But in case you need me to persuade you, let me just give you a few examples to consider answering your question. Uh, in 2016, the U.S. government issued guidance directing public schools to allow transgender students to use the bathroom that corresponds to their gender identity. So that's seven, eight years ago. <clears throat> so if a biological male identifies as female, he would get access to the girl's bathroom, locker room. Uh, obviously, that would allow biological men into women's bathrooms and even open the door for sexual predators. Uh, just because you homeschool or put your kids into Christian schools, none of us can bury our heads in the sand. Courts have ruled that denying transgender people access to their preferred restrooms violates federal law. So some cities and states have already tried to say that if churches are open to the public, then they must let people use the restroom of their choice. Uh, there's a proposed law that would deny parents' rights to their child in a custody battle if a parent doesn't sign on to the transgender re revolution, if they're not affirming of a child's chosen uh, gender identity. So the transgender ideology wants, it does want to revolutionize everything, uh, your kids, your school, your community, even your church. But just because the culture is turning away from God's design and creation, we don't need to despair. I think we can hear the headlines and there can be a, uh, a temptation to feel very discouraged or despair. We have to remember that the world has always been lost in sin. And now it's just becoming more obvious. And the darker the room, the brighter the light of the gospel. The brighter the light of the gospel shines. So, so in this moment, <clears throat> in this cultural moment, it's a call for us to renew our biblical convictions and a call to courage, right? So listen to the words of Isaiah. Uh, take, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you should honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Isaiah chapter 8. So let's go into it with this mindset of faith and courage. I want to just define a couple terms so we know what we're talking about. Uh, gender identity. This is a person's internal perception as male, female, or some other option, who they think they are. Gender expression is the ways a person presents and embodies their gender identity in social and cultural context, so how they express who they are. A transgender is someone whose gender identity differs from biological sex. Some may choose to go through treatments or surgeries to conform their body with their chosen identity. And then gender dysphoria, this is a clinical DSM-5 term, people whose gender at birth is contrary to the one they identify with. This is the term widely used in our culture. Now, that's the terminology, so we kind of have a starting point. But, you know, this is the main idea I want to leave you for today. You know, uh, as we listen as Christians, as Rob was saying, uh, trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord. Trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord. So wherever you are in your journey with God, and as you think about the people you minister to, we have to come back to this over and over again. A reminder that, you know, God is God and I am not. 
that God is creator and Lord. He created me, and he has a right to define me. Uh, we can't affirm God is creator on one hand and then deny certain aspects of his creation on the other hand. As I've heard it said, he is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Lord of all or not Lord at all. And this is taught all throughout Scripture, but let me just point out one passage that highlights a number of key biblical truths. They're just being denied today. Uh, Psalm 139, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book was written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So God made us. He knit us together. He made us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And our creation as male or female has to be included in that. You know, we're image bearers from the moment of conception. God is sovereign over every day, over the day that we were conceived, the day we were born, the day we'll die. So he's planned and ordered and written everything in his book. One key verse for tonight, as we consider God is our creator, comes right from the first chapter of the Bible. So we look at Psalm 139, but this is our central verse here, uh, verses here, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this passage, we'll be coming back to this, you know, in this evening. But this passage reminds us that God created us in his image, right, as male or female. It means a male created as male will always be male. And a female created as female will always be female. It's hardwired into every single cell of our bodies. Boy is in your fingers, your toes, your eyes, your hair. God gives each of us a special code that is found in every tiny little cell in your body. There's a code for the color of your skin, hair, and eyes. And there's a code that says you are a boy and a code that says you are a girl. Girls have a double XX gender code that makes them female, and boys have an XY gender code that makes them male. Your gender code is stored deep in every cell of your body. And that's a quote from Pastor Marty Machowski's uh, book, God Made Gir Boys and Girls. And many of you are familiar, uh, you know, if you, if you have grade school kids, you're probably familiar with Marty's book. Uh, if you haven't read this with your children, again, I highly recommend it. You know, that would be my, you know, one of my top book recommendations, especially for parents. Uh, you know, it covers our creation and then corruption and our redemption in Christ. And as we look at our big idea, uh, I want to break this down into three main headings tonight. Uh, this whole idea of trusting God as our sovereign creator and Lord. So we trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord when we, number one, embrace submission. Number two, embrace differences. And number three, embrace authority. So we embrace submission, our differences, and authority. So I'm going to so that's basically the structure of our, of our time this evening. And then later on, at the end, I will be spending some time on apologetics. You know, how does this practically work out as you engage with people on this issue? So, so we'll go through the content first and then the apologetics. So number one, embrace submission that God made us. The central question in the transgender debate is, does God have the right to make me either male or female? Does God have that right? So someone who is born male has got the XY 
chromosomes, gender code, females XX. And we know from Genesis 131, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is straight from Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning. Male and female is part of God's good creation because it reflects who God is. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that in the very beginning, God looked at his creation and said it was good, that he did not make any mistakes. Every star, tree, and animal was made exactly like God wanted it. Our hair color, skin color, freckles, and whether we are a boy or a girl are all part of the wonderful way God made us to be. Just as we saw in Psalm 139, we are, as his image bearers, fearfully and wonderfully made. Hair color, skin color, freckles, and yes, even our gender, male or female, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But there's a voice today in our culture that comes from the serpent. Did God actually create you male or female? Did you know you can be like God? You can decide for yourself if you are male or female. And this gets down to an important term in theology. If you haven't heard of this, this is an important term to be, just to be aware of. It's the creator-creature distinction. If you haven't heard of it, it's an important category. Creator-creature distinction. What it means is that a creature is made a creature and always will be a creature. A creature can never be the creator. There's a creator, God. Only God is the creator. And we are creatures. We are made. We can never be the creator because we're the creature. So the defining issue for us as creatures, not the creator, is to embrace submission. So we have to ask ourselves, are we willing (coughs) to submit to God as creator? Are we willing to accept the gender, the role of a creature? A theologian, Bobbing, puts it this way. A creature really has a choice between only two options. Either it chooses to be its own creator and thereby ceases to be a creature, or it must be and remain a creature from beginning to end and therefore owes its existence and the specific nature of its existence only to God. So there's only two choices. We can accept the fact that we're a creature, or we can attempt to overthrow the creator and try to be the creator. Chromosomes cannot be re-engineered, removed or scrubbed from the software of our bodies. It may be possible for a trans woman to pass for a woman on the street at the visual level, but it is not possible for a man to morph himself into a biological woman. A trans woman can grow its hair long, wear high heels, and pump estrogen into his body. But, unable to decode ourselves from the genetics, we are left to rearrange anatomical aesthetics and coerce ourselves in a direction that runs against nature. So what Tony Ranke is saying here in this quote is that you can change external appearances, right? You can change organs, you can change your dress or appearance, but you can't recreate every single human cell. You can't change all those XYs to an XX or an XX to an XY. At a fundamental level, those things <coughs> are hardwired by our creator. There is a creator-creature distinction. A creature can never be the creator, and the creature can never create itself. As you head on down in the uh, outline, there are questions and discussion starters for parents and children of youth. So if you, do have parent, you know, if you are parents here, you know, I won't go over these, but they are printed in your handout. These questions and... Um, Discussion starters come from my second book recommendation, Gender, a Conversation Guide for Parents and Pastors. It's less than 100 pages, broken down to different sections depending on uh, the children you want to engage with, so whether they're 7 and under, 7 to 11, or 12 and above. So it's another resource for you to consider. 
So that's our first major point. We embrace submission, the fact that God made us. He's the creator, we are not. We also trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord when we, number two, embrace differences. We embrace differences. So not just embrace submission, we embrace differences. And what I mean by that is that male and female are not interchangeable. They're not interchangeable. You can't just swap them out. Differences were made in a unique way to, for, for us to fulfill the creation mandate. Go back to our, if we go back to that key scripture, Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. To be fruitful and multiply requires both male and female, right? Adam can't be fruitful and multiply without Eve. And Eve can't be fruitful and multiply without Adam. Though male and female are created equal, there are different roles. The roles are not interchangeable. And the physical realities of how God has made a male uniquely male and God has made a female uniquely female, those align with spiritual realities. A husband... And a father's role, for instance, is to protect and to provide. Men are given greater physical strength relative to women. Men are given the role to lead in the home and the church. And the wife, or the mother's role, is one of nurture, one of caregiving. So women are given the ability to bear and nurse children. It's not given to men. Women are given the role of helper to their husbands. And the differences in role, of course, don't reflect differences in worth. It's not better or worse to be male or female or to be a leader or helper. These are divine, uh, there's divine glory and dignity in these God-given roles. And, of course, that means there's responsibility and accountability as well. You know, it matters to us whether we embrace these differences because God has made them. Uh, because one day we'll answer to God for whether we uh, embraced uh, his creational blueprint that he's laid out for our flourishing. And as Christians, um, we need to remember, uh, we need to just uh, step back from all the heat of the cultural debate and, and realize we stand on God's truth. We stand on the reality of how God has created the world. So we don't have to be embarrassed by differences. We don't have to be embarrassed by the differences in role. We can embrace God's good design. Sometimes we can feel maybe embarrassed that, hey, we're complementarian, you know. Uh, we are a church that's in a denomination that's complementarian. Men and women are created equal, but are also created for different roles. We don't have to be embarrassed by that. Uh, churches that are egalitarian deny those differences. That uh, They say that both men and women can lead the home or the church. But here's the warning for all of us. The logic of egalitarianism is the same logic of transgenderism. This is what I mean by that. Egalitarianism says men and women are interchangeable in their roles. Right, you can swap men and women out. Transgenderism takes that same logic and says men and women are interchangeable in their biology. There's the same logic, but now they're applying it to biology. Now, I'm not saying that all egalitarians sign on to transgenderism. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the logic of egalitarianism is the same logic of transgenderism. And we already see churches go down that path. Egalitarian churches are embracing the uh, transgender revolution. So I would, be, I would exhort us, you know, um, as churches within Sovereign Grace, to hold fast to our complementarian convictions because that will help us remain faithful where other churches are surrendering, capitulating to the cultural pressures. So with that said, uh, we need to unpack a bit more. What does it mean for us to be male or female? 
we need to know these creational differences so we can discern what's biblical and what's cultural. We need to distinguish between creational, cultural, and conventional differences. So we're going to unpack these a bit more. So there's creational differences between male and female. There's cultural differences and conventional differences. So what I'll do in this section here, I'll start with the most inflexible set of differences to the most flexible one. So I'll spend the most time with the first one, our creational differences, how God has made us male and female. So these creational differences, we need to embrace these with joy. Embrace these with joy. God has created us as male or female, gendered, specific biology, with different anatomy. So males are built to be protectors and providers. Females are built to be, uh, built to be able to conceive and bear children. A person with male anatomy is reflecting physically the fact that they are created a man. A person with female anatomy is reflecting that she is a woman. Men and women are more than just their anatomy, but they are not less. If female and male are bodies are created good, then change of that is not good. It's, in effect, it's defacing the image of God. Fertile and functioning sex organs reshaped into disabled sexual organs is not human progress. It is the mutilation of nature. The act of surgery renders a body denatured and now incapable of fitting into the larger created pattern for which it was made to attend. <clears throat> this is where we see good science and biology and medicine affirm what God's word says. It says that, well, you know, we're created different, so males are created to produce sperm, females are created to produce egg, and you need both to be fruitful and multiply. And only males can produce sperm, and only females can produce eggs and conceive and give birth. So from, you know, even from conception and procreation, we, we see differences in gender role that are beautiful, that are necessary, that are part of God's good created order and his created design. Sexuality strengthens a monogamous bond and deepens the devotion of a couple as they welcome the gift of children. Sexuality is the means of procreation, but first it establishes a covenant unity for one couple, creating a place best suited for raising children. This is the beautiful design and purpose of the creator. Nature calls for it. This is basic middle school biology and yet there is so much confusion in our culture today. So we must think carefully and biblically. And so those who deny those creational differences reject the creator who gave us those differences. So we're not just created with different anatomy. We're created with different roles. So we talked about different anatomy. Now we're going to talk about different roles. So females created, designed by God to be a mother, a nurturer, and caregiver. And we see this. Uh, even in Paul's apostolic ministry to the Thessalonians. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And only a female, only a mother, obviously, can nurse an infant. Men can't do that. Males can't do that. Now, certainly not all women are called to motherhood, but all are called to motherly care and nurture. <coughs> uh, Proverbs 31, a familiar passage with many of you. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household. And that's not just a, something taught in the Old Testament. It's a New Testament reality as well. Paul in Titus, the book of Titus says, train the young women to love their husbands. 
and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And if you take a step back, and by contrast, males were designed by God to be a father, to instruct with authority, to provide with faithfulness. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You can see the contrast, Paul talking about the male side, so to speak, of his ministry. Uh, The father has the primary responsibility for instructing the family to know and follow the Lord. Now you remember from Genesis 1, God's instructions about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was given to Adam. Eve wasn't even created yet. And then at the fall, God holds Adam responsible first, not Eve, even though she's the one who was deceived and took the fruit first. (coughs) Fathers have a responsibility to provide. God instructs Adam to work and keep the Garden of Eden. Again, Eve wasn't created yet at that point. And just let me clarify a couple quick things. The text's don't say that girls shouldn't be interested in God's word. In fact, older women are encouraged and even commanded to teach the younger women in discipleship. I also want to clarify that it doesn't mean girls, women, can't pursue a career outside the home. Some ladies are called to serve Jesus in corporate America, and that's, that's wonderful. We can applaud that. And yet, even if that's the case, uh, the, the wife, the mother, still has to put her primary focus and attention on the home. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to move on, but you can check the, some applications later. They're in your handout. So, uh, so as we look at uh, embracing differences, we've looked at our different anatomy, and then we've looked at different roles. But even when we take a step back, we see that these differences aren't random. These differences reflect differences in God himself. Because God created us in his image, we expect his image bearers to reflect who he is. So gender differences, um, image differences in God himself. 1 Corinthians 11.3, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And we can see even in this one verse uh, that there are differences in the relationships in the Trinity. We have one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. There is a unity, right? There is one God, only one God. You know, one God with persons who are co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. And yet, in this one God, there, are, there is diversity. There are differences in role. There are three persons. Uh, the Father initiates, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. Now, this means, for example, the Son doesn't initiate. The Son does not send the Father. The Father sends the Son. This means that the Spirit didn't accomplish salvation. It was, you know, Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross. So God the Father uh, sent God the Son to die on the cross, and the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to apply salvation to us. The roles are not interchangeable, right? They reflect the unity and diversity within the Godhead, and it's a glorious reality. And again, the differences in role don't mean differences in value. It's not like the Father is more God than the Son, or the Son is more God than the Spirit. There's only one God. Each of them are fully God. And so Paul takes this truth and applies it to us as human beings who are created in God's image. So we we mirror, we image our triune God. So So he talks about how the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife 
It's her husband. Right? There's a headship here that we don't need to be embarrassed about. It's a reflection of who God is, right? The head of Christ is, is the father. The head of the wife is her husband. And when you understand this, <clears throat> you understand that embracing gender differences is not a small thing. I mean, there's so much cultural pressure these days, right? I mean, men and women are interchangeable. You know, why, why, why is it that men are the head of the home? Uh, this, this ultimately isn't about headship and roles. It has to do at a more deeper level with our understanding of who God is. So embracing this, embracing these differences, becomes an act of worship to God. We worship God. We, we enjoy Him. We take delight in who He is, who He is as Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, one God, different roles that are not interchangeable. It's an act of worship when we embrace that. But a denial of these truths becomes, in effect, a denial of who God is. So this is not a small thing. Okay, so uh, at this point, I realized this was a bit of a long and necessary journey on creational differences, truths that we embrace with joy. You know, we talked about different anatomy, different roles, and how these differences reflect differences in God himself. And I want to pause here before we move on to different categories of different gender differences, uh, because some of you might need encouragement because you're discouraged. You know, maybe a two-parent home is not your reality. You know, you grew up with only one parent. Or maybe you've seen those taken in by transgenderism, maybe a friend or a family member. <clears throat> or maybe you're at a loss as to what to do next, uh, or even how to love those that God has put into your life. If you are in this situation, uh, I just want to encourage you and remind you that God wants to take your weakness and reveal his strength as you rely on Christ, as you come and realize that you're not sufficient, but God is. God is able. He is the creator. He's given us all the resources we need. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 reminds us, my grace is sufficient for you. So whatever you're walking through, whatever trials or difficulties you're walking through with regard to transgenders, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So if you're here tonight and you feel weak, you feel inadequate, we all need to be reminded that God's power is made perfect in our weakness, that we're not able, but He is able. So as we look at um, different categories of gender differences, um, we looked at creational differences, but now I want to just Again, this, this will be briefer now. Uh, we're going to look at cultural differences when it comes to gender and also conventional differences. So number two, cultural differences. Uh, these are differences that we embrace in order to serve others. There are certain cultural norms that are subjective but are used by society to provide a common language to define who is a boy and who is a girl. I think of these like traffic lights. In our culture, red means stop, Green means go. Now, we could have defined it a different way. We could have meant green means stop and red means go, but that's not how we decided to do it. We just decided to do it this way. Now, in our culture, in a similar way, pink is associated with girls and blue with boys, typically. Now, we could have defined it another way, and I think there was one point in, in this country where it was actually the other way, where I think, you know, boys were, you know, pink and red, but this is how we have it today, right now. 
And this, is, this allows us to have a common language to communicate in our culture. So for instance, we don't want a newborn girl to be confused as a boy, so we dress her up in pink, put a bow on her head, right? In our culture, pink dresses are for girls, not for boys. Think about other, uh, like certain forms of jewelry. Now in another culture, men wear kilts or skirts, right? So that means skirts or the color pink or blue or jewelry, these aren't universal, these aren't timeless. These are cultural expressions for particular people, places, and times for gender. So these will change, not universal. But even though they change, they're culturally conditioned, it's generally wise to stick with these cultural expressions unless they violate scripture. So it's wise to dress my daughter, Alexa, in a pink dress, right, when she was born, so she wouldn't be confused as a baby boy. It's wise not to dress my son, Timothy, in a pink dress, so he's not going to be confused as a girl. So it's good for us to learn to speak the language of gender in our culture. It's it's helpful to serve people. Now, I want to contrast that with creational differences. Those creational differences we spend a lot of time talking about, now those are universal, those are timeless. No matter what culture you're in, only a mother gives birth. That's not going to change. Doesn't matter what culture or time period you're in, only mothers give birth. Doesn't matter what culture you're in, husbands are called to lead. Fathers are called to instruct. So in summary, to love our neighbor, to communicate well, we should probably, generally speaking, abide by cultural differences as much as uh, cultural differences as much as possible. Uh, number three, conventional differences. Um, these we have the freedom to embrace or reject. Conventional stereotypes refer to certain expectations we happen to place on girls and boys. We might tend to think as a culture that girls dance and boys play sports. Now we have to remember though, activities do not define gender. Stereotypes do not define gender. Conventional stereotypes are a matter of taste and preference. Marty helpfully writes this. uh, Some girls love to sing and dance, while other girls like to uh, run like the wind and like to climb trees. Some girls like to cook, while others would rather fix cars. Some boys can jump high and run fast, while others are artists. Some boys like to dance, and some love to sing. Some cook, and some fix cars. So you might have a daughter who likes to wrestle or explore or build. That doesn't make them you know, a boy or a girl, right, those activities, she might be called to be an athlete or engineer or a scientist. You might have a boy who likes to dance or sing. They might be an artist or, a, or, or cook. Now, you remember in Genesis, Jacob liked the indoors, but Esau liked the outdoors and to hunt. So our gender is not defined by certain activities. Oh, oh you got to be an outdoorsman to be, to, be a male, uh, to be a male, to be a man. No, I mean, those are just, those are just preferences. Uh, we can think that, for instance, like men like trucks, they like power tools, and women like art. But there's plenty of examples that break the stereotype. Lots of women drive trucks, right? Uh, I know a Sovereign Grace pastor who has a garage full of power tools. They're not his power tools, they're his wife's power tools. And even at home, like, I'm not the guy to pick up the drill or the saw or to be handy. That's my wife. You know, she enjoys that kind of stuff. She enjoys like building and fixing things around the house. I, I get scared of tools, okay? So when it comes to these conventional stereotypes, we have the freedom to disregard them, okay? These are not creational. They're not cultural. They're just a matter of convention, okay? So we can have the freedom to follow them or not follow them. So if your daughter enjoys running and climbing trees and, and you know, solving math problems, you know, back her all the way, 
right? Uh, <clears throat> so that's conventional differences. Uh, so we trust God <clears throat> as our sovereign creator and Lord when we embrace submission, when we embrace differences, okay? And then finally, our third main point for this evening, when we, uh, we, when we embrace authority, the authority of God's word. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3. <clears throat> the foundations for knowing who we are and how we're made is found in God's word. All scripture is breathed out by God. That means it comes from him. And remember, before the fall, man needed God's word. He needed to know which tree not to eat from. And on this side of the fall, don't we need God's word even more because of sin? God's word alone is what we need for life and salvation. It's sufficient. God's word must be trusted. And so that means the opposite is true. Our hearts, our culture, the voices that we might hear, they're in contrast. They're corrupt and often untrustworthy. Proverbs 14.12 puts it well. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And even scientists and doctors recognize the foolishness of patients trying to diagnose themselves, especially in the area of transgenderism. The least certain diagnosis is that made by the patient, made as it is without any training or objectivity. This uncertainty is not lessened by the patient's frequently high degree of conviction. Neither does the support of others with gender dysphoria help, since conviction leads people to associate with the like-minded and to discount or fail to seek out disharmonious views. So what, what they're basically saying, if that's, that's a bit of a mouthful, is that the patient is least qualified to diagnose himself, even if he has a strong conviction, and even if he surrounds himself with those who are like-minded, because that's our tendency. We surround ourselves with people who agree with us and think just like us. That doesn't mean the diagnosis is correct. So transgender ideology cuts to the heart of what God's word <coughs> excuse me, teaches about God sin, and salvation. Transgender ideology is, in, in another way to look at it, it's another form of idolatry. Uh, we've seen this with the denial of the creator-creature distinction, right, where the creature wants to be the creator, where, the, where we as human beings want to take the place of God. The essence of sin is a rejection of God and the way of life found only in him. Lest we be, be proud, we have to remember that's where all of us were apart from Christ. Right? We're all idolaters, right? We're all wanting to overthrow the creator. But, this, but the good news of salvation is that, well, God doesn't leave us there in that state. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son for rebels like you and me. Because he loves us that much, shouldn't we be able to trust him with not just our salvation, but with our sexuality? And maybe you're here this evening and you struggle with gender dysphoria, or you know those who are struggling with their gender identity. You're suffering, or you know those who are suffering. Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to suffer for you, for your friend, for your family member. <clears throat> he came to live and to dwell among us and then to die in our place. So if we can trust him with our soul, with our eternal destiny, with forgiveness of our sins, then we can certainly trust him with how he has made us and his plans for us. 
Suffering in Christianity is ultimately one of the most powerful media for the transmission of meaning. Evil was transmuted, transformed into the living water, the blood of Christ, the wellspring of creation. The great paradox here is that the tree of death and suffering is the tree of life. The central paradox in Christianity allows us to love our own brokenness precisely because it is through that brokenness that we image the broken body of our God and the highest expression of divine love. A crucified creator is a God who has the authority to tell us what to do, who has the wisdom to know what is best for us, and who has proved that he can be trusted to tell us what is best for us. Well, because God is creator, he is God, he is creator, certainly he has authority, he has wisdom, right? In other words, he's the manufacturer, he's the maker of our body. He knows what our body is and how it's supposed to operate. But not only that, because Jesus was crucified for our salvation, he's proven his love for us. So we can trust him, not just because he's a God of authority and wisdom, but he's a God of love who has our best interest at heart, who laid down his life to prove that he loves us. And this means, however, that turning away from this God, this God of perfect uh, authority, power, wisdom, and love, is death, right? It's physical and spiritual death because life and salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. It's only found in our creator God. Then Jesus told his disciples, if, any man, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And we need to remember that the Christian life is a life of self-denial. <clears throat> that following Jesus is a life of repentance. It's a life of putting away our sinful desires, putting away our sinful flesh, and walking by faith. Following Jesus means submitting to his word, being willing to submit, to every as- submit every aspect of our lives to him. And salvation is found also in, in sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We haven't had to do much of that recently, but we might very well be called to do that. The call, the call to follow Jesus is the call to suffer. As the world hated Jesus, it will hate the followers of Jesus. The New Testament is full of warnings of persecution, so that we will uh, you know, have courage and not be afraid when, when persecution comes. For instance, in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And just so you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys are hearing this, well, there are transgender activists that want to criminalize certain beliefs. Like, believing these things will be a crime, possibly, if they get their way. It's, these are some of the beliefs they want to criminalize. The belief that marriage is only between a man and a woman. It could get you locked up perhaps one day. The belief that sexual activity should be restricted to marriage. The belief that children have a right to know and be brought up by their own father and mother. The belief that human beings are either male or female from birth. Now, 50, you know, 10 years ago, these would be accepted, right? Conventional wisdom, so obvious, you wouldn't even need to say them. But these are all up for grabs today, and we need to know these truths and stand on the authority of God's word uh, and the revelation he's given to us in creation and be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, suffer for the sake of Christ. 
So we trust God as our, to wrap things up here, this section, we trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord when we embrace submission. He is creator, I am not. When we embrace differences, he made us different in many different ways for his glory to embrace those. And then when we embrace authority, his word should have the final say in our lives. That's how we trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord. At this point, I'm going to turn the corner, and we're going to talk a little bit about apologetics in my time remaining. Um, So we can, uh, again, just give you examples and ways to engage our culture, to equip you, to explain the hope of the gospel to those who might be struggling or those who are wondering why we believe what we believe. Because some of the stuff we believe is, is now viewed as just odd or maybe even hateful by the culture today. And again, God doesn't call us to retreat, but to speak truth in love. There is a reality defined by God the Creator, and there's a reality defined by man in rebellion to God. So as his ambassadors, as as ambassadors for Christ, as his witnesses, we have the glorious privilege of showing the beauty, the joy, the satisfaction of living God's way and exposing the lies of the world's way. There are two unforgivable sins in a postmodern, post-Christianized, individualist world. The first is to judge someone else. The second is to fail to fulfill your desires. In a postmodern world, truth is relative. Right? There's no such thing as truth. It's your truth, my truth. In a post-Christian world, a basic understanding of God, sin, and salvation can't be assumed. And in, in the age of the individual, <coughs> the central question is, what makes me happy? It's all about what makes me happy. Gender ideology downplays the significance of our physical bodies and says that our subjective feelings are more important. It places a wedge between body and mind. This false distinction between body and mind is a new form of an old heresy called Gnosticism. It divides your thoughts from the physical reality of the body. If you're not familiar with Gnosticism, it's a heresy of the early church where there were some within the church viewed the mind, the soul, the spirit, the immaterial parts of who we are as good, but the body, oh, that's bad. Physical reality, that's bad. But the incarnation, God becoming man, Jesus taking human body, uh, that, was, that was offensive to Greeks, you know, because uh, they viewed the physical world as a lower form of, uh, of reality. That was bad, that was dirty, but, you know, the, the, the realm of the spirit, of the mind, that was better, okay? So Gnosticism, like today, tried to make Christianity a bit more palatable, acceptable to the culture, and said, okay, we'll adopt that. You know, we'll say, okay, the, the spirit, mind, soul, that's good, but the body's bad. Gnosticism, what it does is divides what God has united. He has made us whole people, right? We're created not just with the body, not just with the soul, but a Uh, but a body and a soul, a mind and a body, one person, body and soul. So we can't divide what God has joined together. And that's the essence of transgenderism. It divides mind and body. If I think I'm a female trapped in a male body, and because my thoughts are superior, right, to the body, I have to transition to a female, right? Because because if, if, if the mind, if the soul, the, the, the immaterial, that's, that's superior, well then, okay, then, you know, I'm going to place that above my body. As Christians, we have, excuse me,
we have a message to proclaim, that there's wholeness, there's joy, there's life, not in dividing between body and soul, but embracing the unity of body and soul the way God made us. So as we think about apologetics, as we think about how to engage, uh, we have to realize some of us like to, some of us like to contend while some of us want to just have compassion and love, but we need both. We need to speak truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Tim Keller says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, <coughs> is marked by both radical truthfulness, yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and, re and repent. <coughs> so we spent a lot of time tonight looking at truth. It's easy in the midst of learning the truth to forget the compassion piece, the responsibility to, to love our enemies and care for those who are hurting. You cannot help a burden with a burden unless you come very close to the burdened person. So in the same way, a Christian must listen and understand physically, emotionally, spiritually to take up some of the burden with the other person. And the church should be the most welcoming place for transgendered people, gender, people struggling with gender dysphoria. The church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. So Jesus came for the broken people, the weak people, the sick people. It's easy to forget this and look down on those who, who might have a different set of uh, convictions as our own. But <clears throat> when we came to Jesus, we came as broken, weak sick people. And we're not, so at some level, we're not all that different from the, you know, transgender folks or those who are struggling with gender dysphoria. You know, we're all broken in many ways and need a savior. So I want to just conclude our time with just a couple different examples of just ways we can uh, engage with our culture. Uh, these are three areas, finding your identity, following your feelings, and following creation. So uh, finding your identity, and that's, um, the notion, well, God made me this way. I'm a, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body or vice versa. <clears throat> the transgender community finds their identity in a different gender. That's what defines them. So transgenderism, for, for some, gives people purpose, gives people meaning and value. In, in other words, it's, a, it's another religion for them. And when we realize it's a religion, that can help us understand why there are so many who are so committed to this ideology even to the point of denying basic scientific and biological facts. And yet we must have compassion. They don't know the true and living God. They don't know um, the true hope, but have built their hope on empty promises. And so we need to be careful as we engage someone in this topic. For example, someone who is gay can easily interpret the condemnation of homosexual activity as a rejection of themselves. This happens when our identity is based on anything our desires, attractions, skin color, or actions, other than what God's word says. So what is the root issue? Well, deep down, all of us have a desire and need for love and acceptance, to know that I have meaning, I have value, I have purpose. And as Christians, obviously, we don't look to ourselves for those things. We, look, we don't look to anywhere else, within ourselves, outside ourselves, other than God himself. Our hearts were made for love, a love that big, 
a love big enough that only God can provide. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah 3.17. And the hope that we offer to people is for people to find their identity in you know, who God is, how God has made us, because God has made us and knows us best. And our, our hope, the hope that we have, the hope we offer to others is to, to, to not find their identity in their, in their feelings or a different gender, but to find your identity in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, you know, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. <clears throat> he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions, adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Uh, the theologian Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So God in Christ has loved us with an everlasting love, a love that the world can't even approach, can't even touch. God's love knows us in all of our beauty and our brokenness and loves us as the one who has sent and given up his one and only son. So why would we or why would anyone else want to settle for anything else less than this love that God has freely given and offered to us? So that's number one, finding your identity, right? Like we can offer uh, identity in Christ, which is so much better than any identity that the world has to offer. Number two, following your feelings. Uh, one of the sacred values of this culture is following your feelings, right? That's a, that's a mortal sin, not following your feelings. Our society tells us if it feels good, it must be good. It must be right. But that's devastated society. One of the key arguments in transgenderism, if a female feels male, well then <coughs> follow your feelings. But we all know that uh, feelings are fickle. They can lead you astray. We often don't trust our feelings. And when feelings become our authority instead of God, that just really, you know, we just run into all sorts of problems. Uh, there's an illness called bodily integrity disorder. <clears throat> Some people have this, and they feel like my arm or leg doesn't belong. I don't feel like I should have this arm. This doesn't feel like this should be here. It doesn't feel like it belongs so they feel like, and this is, this, is a, this is a real issue for some people, they feel like they need to amputate their arm or leg because it doesn't belong. They genuinely believe that. It's very bizarre, but there are people like that. Should we encourage them to remove the arm or leg based on this feeling? No. A loving response will help the person see that the limb is a natural part of who they are, and they should work to align their feelings with their biology? Do we have to affirm every identity or orientation? What about pedophilia or bestiality? Or what about those who claim to be a different age or race or species? Relying on our feelings can be dangerous because it denies God, denies our creator, and we exit the realm of reality and then we endanger ourselves. When someone argues that they are transgender and feel they need irreversible gender reassignment surgery, we should help them understand that they don't have a problem with their body, but with their feelings. Because our feelings are often sinful and wrong. And we know that if everyone acted on all the feelings that they have, imagine the utter chaos and destruction we'd be in if every one of us acted on every single feeling uh, that, that we experienced. 
But as Christians, we have an alternative. We don't have to be enslaved to our fickle feelings. We can embrace our calling given by our good creator. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek, uncir- uh, let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And we can apply this into <coughs> whatever situation God has called into, called us into. Our identity is not to be understood in terms of feeling, but rather in terms of calling. God has called us to live either as men or women, and his calling meshes with the way he has created us. So there is beauty, there's joy, there's life, there's fulfillment in submitting to God's blueprint rather than denying his blueprint. And binary is beautiful. The creation account shows us that the binary is, <coughs> is not bad. It is beautiful. When God separated light from darkness, land from sea, and earth from sky, he was bringing order out of chaos. Note the binaries in this gracious covenant to Noah. While the earth remains sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So transgender ideology leads to emptiness. There's emptiness in finding your identity in feelings within us. There's emptiness in following your feelings uh, because that quickly leads to sin and the denial of reality. And finally, uh, the, other, the third area of engagement is the reality of fallen creation. Transgenderism is, in, in one sense, is simply just another way for people to express the fact that they know something is not right with this world. When a man feels they should be a woman, that there's a mismatch between feelings and biology, it shows us that there's something wrong in this world. And that's the reality of the post-fall world that we live in, a Genesis 3 world. So instead of fearfully and wonderfully made, we live in a world where there's fear and shame over our bodies. After the fall of humanity into sin, there are all sorts of problems with our bodies. Between birth and death, no one enjoys a body that works as they, they wish it should and as it should. And we can all acknowledge that there's brokenness in this world, can't we? That's a, that's a point of common ground. We know it is to be true every time you get sick, every time something breaks, everything, every time something doesn't quite work the way it's intended to work. In teaching his kids, one author <coughs> tells his daughter, you are not going to grow up to be a butterfly. You're not going to have the ice powers of Elsa, even if you wanted to use them for the good of others. You might not even be a doctor. All our tears, our disappointments and frustrations point us all to the simple fact that this is not the world that any of us want. We can agree with the transgendered individuals that the world isn't the way it should be. But the solution to brokenness isn't more brokenness. True joy and peace is not found by looking within and by rejecting the Creator, but by embracing the Creator and His plan for us. And the data actually confirms this. This is data that's typically buried. You're not going to find this in mainstream media. The results of gender reassignment surgery uh, affirms what we know to be true from the Bible. Compared to the general population, adults who have undergone sex reassignment surgery continue to have a higher risk of experiencing poor mental health outcomes. 
sex reassigned individuals <coughs> were about five times more likely to attempt suicide and about 19 times more likely to die by suicide. Dr. Paul R. McHugh cites uh, data that people who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not statistically report higher levels of happiness after the surgery. He also adds, I've witnessed a great deal of damage from sex reassignment. The children transformed from their male constitution into female roles suffered prolonged distress and misery. So the data simply confirms that, hey, changing your gender isn't going to bring lasting peace. It's not going to bring lasting peace with yourself or with God. And we've all been there, right? There's ways we've struggled with looking how in our sin patterns, looking inward, looking to ourselves. That, that destroys peace and joy and hope. Giving in to sin might bring some short-term happiness, but it brings long-term ruin. In many ways, transgenderism is a, it's a tragic fraud. It's a fad. It's, it offers empty promises by defacing God's good creation. Let me give you an example. This is Walter Hare's story. He grew up uh, staying with his grandmother on weekends where his grandmother would dress him as a girl and lavish attention on him. And later on, uh, an older male relative sexually abused him. And so later on, as he grew up, in his imagination, he would go to a safe place. A safe place was this little girl loved by grandma. And the thoughts became ingrained in, in, in Walter and never went away. He grew up enjoyed career success, got married and have children, but never stopped wanting to be a woman. In his mind, being a female brought him safety and happiness. So at 42, he went through surgery and hormones and transitioned to Laura. So Walter transitioned to Laura. And Walt describes his emptiness. <clears throat> I was generally happy for a while, but being female turned out to be only a cover-up, not healing. I knew I wasn't a real woman, no matter what my identification documents said. What was the point of changing genders if not to resolve the conflict? After eight years of living as a woman, I had no lasting peace. So Walter eventually comes back. He returns to embracing his biology and his creation as male. So coming back to wholeness as a man after undergoing unnecessary gender surgery and living life legally and socially as a woman for years wasn't going to be easy. I had to admit to myself that going to a gender specialist when I <coughs> uh, first had these issues had been a big mistake. I had to live with the reality that body parts were gone. But I had a firm foundation on which to begin my journey to restoration. I was living a life <coughs> free from drugs and alcohol, and I was ready to become the man I was intended to be. This full story is located there at that link. Again, it's a, it's a heartbreaking story, right? It's, tr it's, it's, it's tragic. It's sad. a man who was seduced by uh, the transgender ideology. Uh, let me read you this quote from Sarah R. Uh, this is, a, I, I believe, a, she, when she was writing this, she was a teenager, on wanting to transition to, to a male. Teen girls are taught to hate everything about themselves. None of us can win. Even the thinnest, most clear-skinned, prettiest of girls find an enemy in the mirror. In a world where my style, my interests, and my attractions weren't fit for a girl, transgenderism offered the perfect solution. Be a boy. So if there are parents here, we need to know what messages, what images are being fed to us and our children. What do those things <coughs> teach about God, about ourselves, 
about their version of sin and salvation. <clears throat> the world always presents a false understanding of sin and salvation, right? Like, you know, not following your feelings. That's the mortal sin, right? And so salvation is found in following your feelings, right? That's a, that's a false narrative of sin and salvation. Uh, <clears throat> and we also have to realize that um, children are very immature, Sharon James talks about how we don't allow children to make big decisions. They're not, children aren't allowed to drive until they're 16 or vote till they're 18 or drink till they're 21. So children shouldn't be allowed to make radical, irreversible gender decisions. Uh, and this, <coughs> we should apply these same principles to those experiencing gender dysphoria. Children are experiencing that. She recommends we need to hit the pause button. Let creation run its course, that we shouldn't be intimidated by threats, <coughs> threats of suicide. When children do genuinely experience discontent with their biological sex, this resolves itself in up to 90% of cases that puberty is allowed to take its course. If you allow testosterone to kick in for boys and estrogen for girls, in the vast majority of cases, gender confusion is resolved. And the children may thank you later. Sarah's mom stood firm and refused hormone treatments and surgery for her daughter. And this is what Sarah wrote afterwards. Our relationship is wonderful now, but mom's right about me hating her back then. At the time, like so many other decisions my mother made, it felt invalidating and upset me. But also like all her decisions, I'm now grateful for it. So as Christians, our solution to fallen creation the solution to the fact that we don't have the body we want <coughs> or the identity we want is not looking within ourselves. It's to look to Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul reminds us that true peace, true hope, is not found in ourselves, <clears throat> but with God, with peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, <clears throat> if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. 2 Corinthians 5. The lie of Satan, the lie of our culture, the lie of transgender ideology is that we can be the creator, that we can overthrow the creator. But the amazing and good news of the gospel is that even though we have all overthrown the creator, we have all rebelled against him, in love he has chosen to redeem those who would trust in Jesus Christ. In Christ, ruined creation becomes new creation. To be a new creation in Christ is to be able to anticipate the certainty of a coming day when the disorder of creation is put back together and when dysphoria of any kind is replaced by euphoria of every kind. It is to be equipped with the power of God's Holy Spirit to live in a relationship with God. A new creation in Christ recognizes that even in broken minds, living in broken bodies, living in a broken world, there is a definitive and clear, very good blueprint of creation. Church, we live in a Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 1 blueprint on the trajectory to a Revelation 21 future. And the reality is creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth till now. We're waiting for our adoption, our redemption, our full glorification. We're waiting for Jesus Christ 
to return and where we will be with him and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no, no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is our glorious Revelation 21 reality in the midst of a Genesis 3 world. Yeah, let me pray. Amen and come, Lord Jesus. God, we are thankful for the gospel. Thankful, Lord Jesus, you did not leave us in our brokenness, our deformity, uh, our idolatry, but you chose to come and redeem and recreate and transform us, to give us true meaning, true hope, and true identity, not found in ourselves, our feelings, or what the culture might say, but found in you. And I pray for those who might be struggling uh, or know those who are struggling. We just pray for wisdom and help and strength by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Alex, they've already thanked you for the content of what you've delivered, but thanks for muscling through that cough. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. I'm really glad you didn't call in sick today, too. So, um, okay. all of my notes are here. Hang on. Oh, there's so much we could talk about right now. Um, let me uh, let me just field a few questions and bounce a few here first that I have coming off the message, and then we'll open up questions to everybody else, okay? I have to pick a couple. Um, what counsel would you give to everyone here who uh, wants to both express the compassionate heart of Christ while also standing for God's authoritative truth? Jared, why don't you go first? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So we talk some about this this truth and compassion, you know, balance and tension. And there's a sense in which that's true. But I think the main thing that I'd want to say, and this is something that Alex brought out really clearly, is that the most loving thing that you can do for others at the end of the day is to be truthful. So it's not like it's compassionate to affirm lies that are self-destructive and so it it still means that okay we need to navigate how to it, that means when do we bring certain things up there's a host of complex uh relational questions that can come into play on what should we do in this particular relational uh situation um but i think at the end of the day if we keep in mind that framework that that uh we don't need to fear the truth because statements of the truth uh, are, in fact, loving uh, and will best serve those who are in, in need of the truth. Did you need your time? I don't want to share with you tonight. Okay. <laughs> I think uh, learning to ask good questions. Um, you know, finding out what, um, you know, what's motivating sort of their desires. You know, uh, you know, you know. There's there's ways to build bridges with people. You know, to understand like common ground. Like, uh, you know, if there's, they they might, uh, you, you know, when they experience that disconnect, we can, you know, relate to that. Like, there's there's ways that we feel the brokenness of creation, right? Um, if they're talking about their feelings, how they they feel like they need to be another gender. You know, we can talk about, you know, are there, you can ask questions like, you know, are there feelings that are good to act on? Are there feelings that we shouldn't act on? 
you know, to begin that kind of dialogue. Now, how do you know the difference between those two? So, yeah. But, but that, as Jared said, uh, we have to give them the truth. You know, it's not compassionate uh, to um, simply affirm who they are without graciously, you know, telling them the truth. And let me just add, there are some basic ways that people receive care. Uh, Paul Tripp, in his awesome book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, holds out for us that when someone shares a place that they're struggling, we, we're best served if we relate to what they're experiencing at the time. He talks about entering into the gateway of their experience. Step into that. Ask a follow-up question. As soon as they, they share something that you feel like is out of line with biblical truth, it probably doesn't serve you best to be hit with a closed Bible. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Boom, ah, oh, thanks for that truth. But uh, when, when people relate to where you are, it often will open up the opportunity to share hard things in compassionate ways. Again, that's not affirming. It's just hearing more of where they are. A simple follow-up question that invites next-level sharing could be very, very helpful I just want to speak in favor of um, tenderness and gentleness and graciousness in, in communication. It's one of the, and that's informed by a perspective. Francis Schaeffer was able to look at the culture in all of its mess, in all of its sin, and weep over it. And it ought to be that as we look at the direction of our culture in these things, that the... I get that there is a place for a certain kind of righteous anger at those who are pushing ideologies that are destroying children. And so I get the, the, the angry impulse, and there's something that's right about that sense of, of justice. But it ought to be, even when we feel that, that anger, a kind of, uh, that we're able to look at a lost generation and weep. So that, so that when it comes to, if, if just you find your heart so worked up and, and angry about these things, you're not going to be the kind of person that someone who is struggling with these things is going to, to want to, to talk to. You're not going to have any sort of uh, bridge or ability there. The truths that we hold are offensive enough that we don't need to be additionally offensive in our demeanor uh, and in our tone. Let's let the, the truth do its work of being offensive while we communicate with gentleness, with love, and with respect, even as we uh, communicate our disagreement with others. Hmm. And now I've added on top of what's been added, on top of what's been added. But let me say, we excel at this as a church in so many areas. When people come into our church with addiction pasts, we've got patience realizing God still needs to work. We, we have ways that we can embrace them coming into the church. People that specialize in caring for and walking with people who struggle with that. There's so many ways if people come in with broken homes or broken marriages, we understand God's got to work. We're patient with them. We invite them to bridge and let the gospel do its work there. And then we get them among God's people and we let community do that. And then when it comes to this issue, we can often shut all that off. And just slap truth. And, and oh, let's, let, let's just continue to be Christ in the ways you excel as a church. Let's continue in this area as well. All right. Uh, no. I'll just recommend a book on that. Um, <laughs> how, 
But the, what I was going to say is, and I, we're not going to open this up for discussion unless you want to talk more about it. Uh, I, the, the question is, can, can we please talk about the, the cultural phenomenon of how for centuries this was a predominantly male struggle? And recently it's become a massive female struggle in social clusters. Uh, but there's, there's a wonderful book written about that. It's called Irreversible Damage. Uh, it's, it's, it's not written by a Christian, so don't be surprised that the author is pro-transgender. Uh, but, but the author just explores the damage that's being done to girls, in particular young girls, really aligning with Sarah R. It, that about, you know, teen girls are taught to hate everything about themselves. Uh, all right, but let's not talk more about that now. Uh, all right, let me ask the question that's probably going to be the first question we get when we open the floor. How do we relate to the topic of pronouns? Our, our official team answer is that we, we need to understand there are a variety of ways to approach this, and we should live in accordance with our own convictions, not expecting someone else to live in accordance with your convictions. Add to our team answer, Chair. Yeah, no, I absolutely I, yeah, agree, agree with that. The, the challenge in, this, in these areas is that our culture has redefined terms such that to use those, those terms and that language runs the, the risk of being dishonest and untruthful. And so that's one of the things that people need to wrestle through. And, and this shows up not just in preferred pronouns. I always like to use the example of, of, uh, of marriage, of, of same-sex marriage. You know there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. Um, if you say to a same-sex married couple as you're getting to know them, how long have you been married? You're using the language of marriage in a way that is not in keeping with, with biblical reality. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. I, for one, if I were to have a same-sex couple over and was getting to know them, I would not say, how long have you been in this so-called marriage? You know, um, I, but that would be, that would be uh, technically true. You, you understand. So you immediately come up against these realities. We're wanting to be truthful. We want to be clear on what we believe. And then it's just complicated. But so I, in my own life, uh, there's not currently anyone that I, you know, on, on issues of, of uh, preferred pronouns that I currently use their, their preferred pronouns. I think in a lot of cases we can dodge the issue by using the person's name. Uh, and that's a, a helpful thing. So just to use the person's name uh, a lot in, in, in referencing them or in speaking to them. There was when I was, shortly after I was married, I worked uh, on a, 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 at a particular store. One of the co-workers there, I believe, was transgender. But this is the thing. If you're just getting to know someone, they're not necessarily going to say, I'm a biological man who identifies as a woman. Call me this. And so in that case... As I was navigating that situation, I did, um, you know, use the name and the because that's how it was introduced to me. Now it's different if you have someone. To, so th this is where the complexity of these things does come into play. And there will be some, uh, you know, Rosaria Butterfield's a, a, an example of this. She previously advocated for gender hospitality. And then uh, in terms of using preferred pronouns and mm -hmm. leaning in that direction and has since 
uh, and she's gone full pendulum the other way and says, actually, that position is sinful, you know, and wrong. But uh, my point is she's arrived at a place now where she would no longer uh, hold that same position. If you look at all the literature on this, people come down at different places. Uh, it, and I think we're going to need to leave. So this, is our, this is the team position. We need to leave some room for differences as we navigate these particular things because the situations are endlessly complex. If your employer uh, requires you to have a name tag that then uses preferred pronouns, you know, Jared Meliner, he, him. Some people are gonna say, I can't do it. Some people are gonna say, I'm, I, I quit my job if that's required. Others are gonna say, boy, I really don't like this, don't prefer it, but I'm gonna, and look to navigate that. The point is, the situations are endlessly complex. Um, wisdom is needed, truth is needed, love is needed, and we want to navigate those things wisely. So that was a long answer and short answer, right? You're, 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 yes, all right, I felt, I felt nothing but your agreement. Yeah. Um, all right, one, one last question. Uh, and go ahead, Jared, would you like to say something else? My long answer, I need to add something else on. We agree on so much on these transgender issues. Sometimes there can be a tendency to take the small differences that we have and say, if you relate to it that way, if you take that posture to, you know, pronoun, then you're the problem and you're to blame. I think we, we're looking for someone to blame for the mess that mm -hmm. is our culture. And so often we who share the same biblical theological convictions that Alex just walked us through can turn against each other and can want to blame each other. I'd say... Let's not do that. Hmm. Yeah. There is someone to blame. It's, it's, it's not your fellow church members. Uh, all right. This question leans more heavily into the pastoral. Uh, what do you say to the parent or friend who says, yes and amen, I agree with all you've said, and I've told that to the one that I love, the friend or child, but they're still pressing on towards transgenderism, what do you say to those people? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think we do need to speak and <clears throat> tell people the truth about what they're about to do or the pathway they're pursuing. Now, if they're a minor, obviously we as parents have responsibility to care for our children and to you know, make decisions for them, right? We don't allow children to drive, right, or to consume alcohol. <clears throat> so, you know, but if it's a, a, an independent adult at that point, uh, you know, we can't control their behavior. I think we need to speak truth, and then once we've trusted that <clears throat> we've been faithful before the Lord, okay, we've cared for our friend, our family member, we've said what we need to, then at that point, we've got to trust God. You know, we can't change their, I mean, we're not gonna be the one to change their hearts. Right, God will have to change their hearts. People will, will view disagreement with them in this area as a lack of love, and so we need to counter that by moving toward them, by saying that no matter how they live and what decisions they make, we're going to keep on loving them. We're going to keep on praying for them. Uh, once the, a perspective is known, there's not a need to preach that sermon every time I'm, I'm with them. Uh, I want to continue to, uh, to move toward them, to spend time with them, to say, that, to say this doesn't influence the, uh, the love and respect that I have for you, the interest I have in you as a, as a person, and I'm hoping that this doesn't uh, drive a, a wedge between us relationally. 
Yeah, and if you're not actively in one of those relationships, uh, you may be unfamiliar. The, the creed there is uh, anything other than unconditional affirmation is denial of their existence and hatred. It's emotional violence you're committing. Um, and so if you, if you know people who have children or parents or friends, spouse, whatever, uh, who, who are walking through this, add them to your daily prayer list. It is, a, it is really an immeasurably difficult battle. It's, it's almost unparalleled because it does, the, the relationship doesn't play by any of the rules. And the rules change, and the person who identifies as transgender is the one who gets to write them. And so just pray. It, it, it's, just a, it's a minefield that requires the help of the Holy Spirit on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. To that end, before I open it up to your questions, let me let you know, uh, some of you may be unfamiliar with a group we have here called Resolve. Resolve is a, is a group of, it's a, it's a support group of, of sorts where those who have loved ones who are trapped in these lies or trapped in that LGBTQ community uh, gather once a month uh, for encouragement, for, to, for mutual care, and to receive and process truth together uh, specific to these things. Blake and Sherry Stair, who are here, I'm gonna ask you to just raise your hands, could you? Blake and Sherry provide leadership of that group, and so if you wanna talk to them before you head home, feel free to. Uh, if, if you don't wanna talk here, but wanna reach out later, uh, B Stair, that's S-T-E-H-R, with a B in front of it, at covfell.org. You can reach out to them and ask questions. Uh, uh, the next meeting of Resolve is uh, November 19. It's still November 19, right? November 19. It meets after church in the Marshall House, uh, beginning at noon. Uh, some lunch is provided there, and uh, you can just show up. You can always let them know ahead of time uh, so they, they have enough food for you. But just show up. You're going to find some people there who love people walking through these challenges, who love Jesus, and who love one another. And so uh, don't hesitate to join them. Okay? With all of that said, uh, Kim is very eager to be our first question asker. What we'll do is we'll ask the question. I'll repeat it for the recording, and then we'll answer. Go ahead, Kim. Yeah, so the question is, uh, where does the idea of non-binary fit into this, uh, this gender debate, this phenomenon we're walking through now? It does, yes. If I'm not as familiar with the whole oh, okay. non-binary thing. Do you want so me to go first? I don't know if you guys yeah. are. Yeah, well, uh, it would make sense in a world that throws off boundaries and guidelines that we're not just talking about swapping male and female or female and male. The, the rule that there's only two is so restrictive because I don't feel quite like a male, and this is in italics, I'm not confessing here. I don't feel, I don't feel quite like a male, but I'm not all the way to female, or I'm so far beyond what is typically considered female. I'm something on the other side of that. Uh, why would you restrict me to two when I don't feel like I fit neatly in either? 
That's where non-binary comes, comes in. It, it's the catch-all for someone who doesn't feel like they fit in the restrictive binary, with the most important words there being feel like they fit. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Yeah, there, there's. We, we need to be careful that we don't bring our uh, in trying to understand where they're coming from. Where we don't bring our our. Uh, well, if the the rules are male and female, you, you're a, you're a you're a biological woman, and if you're confused there, then you must think you're a man. No, the rules are much broader than that. Um, but all of the truth and all of the understanding of how we are image bearers of God, everything Alex taught fits entirely into the neither or but beyond uh, top you know, categories. I can throw in maybe one comment. Yeah, so that's probably, you know, one example of various forms of critical theory which view like, you know, any kind of categories as oppressive. You know, how dare you put me into male or female, you know, you know, that's oppressing me. I, I don't want to be pigeonholed into either of those categories. And I think you know, those, that theory can be applied to a number of different categories, but I think the non-binary would apply to kind of this gender-critical theory. You know, don't pigeon me, you know, don't oppress me by saying I have to be one or the other. Good. All right, other questions? Michael. Yeah, so the question is, with the rapid acceleration of this transgender phenomenon, uh, how do we, the question was specifically, how do we see it playing out in the future? I'm also going to throw out here for us to talk about how do we explain the rapid acceleration uh, in the last, you know, 10 years or so. I mean, I, I can, <clears throat> I haven't studied it a whole lot. Uh, the, um, it is unprecedented. Uh, you know, I've heard... Like, for instance, in this country, it took, like, hundreds of years for this country to realize, like, slavery was wrong, but it's only taken a, fair, a much shorter amount of time for this country to kind of reject, you know, what it is always accepted to be for, like, marriage or gender or sexuality. I think um, there's, um, <clears throat> when, when you look at the things that shape culture uh, and the way people think, you think of... Uh, entertainment industry, you think of academia, you think of media. Uh, I think those things were captured by the gender ideology first, uh, probably a bit earlier. And then because of that, I think it's, uh, you know, shaped things rather quickly. So for instance, like, uh, even like maybe 10 or 20 years ago, uh, three quarters of uh, Americans would say a marriage was one man, one woman, right? They didn't believe in this, you know, gay marriage or homosexual marriage thing. But then that's actually flipped in a, in a very short amount of time. Now 75% of Americans think that that's, that's okay, that's a good thing. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, just you know, how people have been conditioned to think very differently. Now you watch a movie, now even Disney, right? They're, they're kind of like showing how 
uh, homosexuality, transgenderism is a good thing, right? You know, so, we all, so even like something like Disney, which seems innocent enough for our kids, you have to be cautious. Like, you know, anytime sin is being shown as a good thing, as a desirable thing, we got to be very cautious. So, I mean, just, to one, just one example, right? Uh, you know, there was a remake of Beauty and the Beast, right? The live action. And they have this little scene at the end where they have two men kissing. I mean, again, it wasn't a big thing, but they kind of threw that in there, right? As a, as a desirable thing. So you begin to sh- change people's perceptions, then you can change their convictions. Uh, you know, Carl Truman wrote a book, actually two books. Um, one of them was called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He wrote, he wrote a shorter version more recently, kind of tracing out, like, how did we get from, you know, step A to step B to step C to the fact that, uh, you know, he talks about how, you know, his grandparents, it would be inconceivable for his grandparents to hear a statement, you know, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. That'd be, that would make complete, that would be nonsense, right, you know, a generation or two ago. And so he kind of traces out, you know, how, you know, how that <clears throat> progression took place. And it has a lot to do with, you know, um, individualism, our own identity, you know, just sort of like just self-actualization. You need, you are your feelings. You need to express your feelings and it, how that's enshrined in our popular culture today. But, you know, that's, that's certainly a, I forget the name of his newer book. Strange New World. Strange New World. I haven't read that one, but, you know, again, it's I good. would, yeah. So, you know, if you're curious about that process, it's probably a good book to, to check out. Yeah, I'm going to say one more thing on the how, and then I'll let you be the first voice on the how we see the future. All right, so get your thoughts together. Um, <clears throat> the uh, when when we when we recommend a book or a resource, we find it largely helpful. It doesn't mean 100% of everything that's in it you should imbibe is your central truth, right? Uh, but uh, to understand how we got here, there's a, there's a very interesting. Somebody can tell me what streaming service it was made for. A uh, documentary called so- The Social Dilemma. Somebody know what it's on? It's in Netflix. Um, it really talks about the, the key role social media plays in uh, shaping how we view the world and how it preys on our habits uh, and draws us in more to what ends up in the end really being quite destructive. Uh, it's a good, I think it's a good explanation, at least for one part, for how we got where we are. And let's talk about the future. Uh, yeah, I want to affirm the, the concern. The, <coughs> if you're not concerned about the direction of our culture in these things, or if you feel like, why is the church talking about, you know, these transgender, LGBTQ, the, the issues around gender and sexuality are the defining issue of our generation from a, a cultural direction standpoint. And so the point at which we need to be faithful is this very, is this very point. And I... It, it is absolutely concerning. I, I, it seems to me that we will have in a, in a short time a, a generation that has been devastated by, uh, by sexual confusion and by gender confusion. And uh, because what, you know, you know uh, Carl Truman talks about this. He's not sure that this can play out long term in the direction that it's headed because not only is it raging against God but it's raging against nature it's raging against the the created order in a way that that doesn't go well that doesn't 
work out. Now, I still think it can get a lot darker before it gets <coughs> better. And um, you know, I, I know of another Sovereign Grace Church that is considering the, they, they, when they built their restrooms, they're each individual restrooms uh, rather than men's and women's for this very reason of thinking about you know, how to relate to these very things. So all of the implications, it's good for us to be wise in these things. I could see a future in which some are imprisoned uh, for hate speech, you know, in these areas. That's certainly not outside the realm of possibility. If that is the future, I believe as senior pastor, I'll be the first to go. And it's absolutely a hill I will die on and that I'm willing to take a, a stand on, come what may, because it's a matter of, of faithfulness, truthfulness to God's word. Um, I could see it being the case that that that. Christians need to entirely think through their approach to education uh, on every level in, you know, in terms of what does the whole mode of cultural engagement look like. I mean, so I am, you know, uh, our, we've done everything with schooling options uh, over the years. We did the most years homeschooling. We did some cyber school options. I have, my kids are currently in public school. In junior high, for the first time last year it was, uh, preferred pronouns became something that they were, you know, asked about. So Isaac comes home and says, what is preferred pronouns? You know, and we're, we're having these, uh, the, these conversations. But it is the extent to which an agenda is being pushed. Has me as a parent <laughs> working a lot on navigating these issues. I go to back to school night and I talk to every single one of the English teachers afterwards on, I have my a little two minute speech that I just, you know, give, but basically I'm wanting to know what, you're not gonna get an angry email from me, but I do wanna know what content is being taught around gender and sexuality and LGBTQ issues that my kids will be exposed to. And, uh, and I just want to understand what they're being taught and when and those, you know, sorts of things. So, who knows what the future looks like? I, and it's, you know, sometimes we'll say this, and I'll preach this. The darker the times get, the brighter the church shines. Yes and amen. But uh, that's not just, a, a, you know, a pithy little. It could mean, the, as it did for the early believers, the plundering of our homes and property. It could mean imprisonment. It could mean being put to death. The church needs to be prepared for these things and to conduct ourselves in a Christian way uh, when the hostility of culture rises against us for what we believe uh, concerning concerning biblical truth. But I do believe that it provides the church with an extraordinary opportunity, um, not only to witness to Christ, but to extend the mercy and grace of the gospel to those who are broken and, and, and hurting. The number of those who are hurting from the devastation of these things is only going to increase in the future. And it's to those men and women that I want to say we have a gospel, a gospel that offers healing, a gospel that offers hope. Jesus makes all things new. The old can be gone. You can be a new creation in Christ. And I think that there's something about the rising confusion that will make the gospel shine all the more brightly. Can I add something real quick to that? Yeah, I would just reiterate, I think, as I mentioned, I think we got to be prepared to suffer, as Jared said, you know, suffer for the truth, and then also to engage with the culture. So, uh, you know, get to know your, you know, whoever's running for town council, uh, county commissioner, your elected representatives, let them know that this is an important issue. This is a creation issue, right? You don't have to be a believer to know the difference between male and female. It's a five-year-old can tell you the difference, right? So engage with, you know, 
wherever the Lord has placed you. And, you know, I will add that uh, because, you know, this, there's, there's going to be fundamental limits to how this revolution can go, right? Because you're running into fundamental creation realities that can't be changed, right? You're not going to rewire every single cell. So we are seeing, like, you know, as, as people engage, uh, as we look for opportunities to engage, we are seeing uh, some encouraging signs. Like, I don't know if you're following, uh, like in Great Britain, there was uh, something made the headlines. Basically, the uh, women's angler team, that's like the fishing team, they did not want to let a biological male who was, you know, you know, transitioned, identified as a female, to join the team because of obvious biological differences. So they said, no, we're not going to have this. Got some pushback, but actually got a fair bit of public support saying, yeah, I mean, this person is a male. They shouldn't be allowed to join a female sporting event. That just seems unfair. So, you know, there's some fundamental, obvious things within creation that we can um, uh, use as common ground as we engage these things. Uh, so, in fact, uh, they, <clears throat> we, al we also saw that in Great Britain, there was a bit of a shift. So, whereas maybe five years ago, there was more uh, support for transgenderism, that support has actually receded a bit in Great Britain. So, so, I would say maybe it's not all doom and gloom. Maybe there's some hope that things could reverse. I don't know if we necessarily see that here in the States, but we've seen some, I've, I've seen some encouraging signs in places like Great Britain where the you know, National Health Service is pushing back on like, gender reassignment surgery in Great Britain. We also had here, if you're looking for things to be optimistic about, you know, everything that played out with the boycotts around Target and what was it, Budweiser? Bud Light. The, yeah, the Bud Light. The, but the way that, that apparently there are a good number of people in our country who are not supporting uh, this kind of, of uh, radical uh, agenda in culture. Just hacking on to, and then I'm going to come over here. You've been so patient, patience. Um, I didn't even mean that as a pun when I said it, but it felt so good to say. Um, just to give you a resource to move forward with what Jared was talking about, about preparing your heart for the possibility of suffering, there's a, there's a short book. When I say short, it's like 150 pages or so, um, called uh, the, An Unquenchable Flame, written by Michael Reeves. It's kind of a primer on, uh, the, on Reformation and those who suffered, the martyrs of the Reformation. I, find, I found this book so helpful when I read it. Uh, just it's, it, it, it makes you realize if we're ever called to suffer, we are in really good company. Historically, we're in really good company. <coughs> Patience. So the question is, how are we equipping younger people to engage this topic as they are in very hostile environments of, let's say, high schools and universities? Uh, in, I, I was at a football game. This is not a direct answer to your question. It's to relate to your question. I was just at the football game Friday night, so that's two nights ago. And they had the homecoming court walk in. And, uh, and uh, the... Of the many thoughts that flooded in my head as I saw the couples walk in uh, to be voted on for homecoming king and queen, I turned to Gina and I said, I can't fathom the difficulty of being a Christian teacher in a public high school. It's, uh, 
just re remarkable respect. I'm looking at one now. Remarkable respect uh, for those who are willing to stand for Christ in that area and aware of the, the, uh, the puzzle every day is to figure out how to engage that for the glory of Jesus. So that doesn't answer your question, but it affirms the need for an answer. So let me turn to these two guys. <laughs> <coughs> Yeah, so the question is, what are we doing as a, as a church? You know, it, it's, a, it's a great question, and in any area of leadership like this, my impulse is not like, well, we're crushing it, and here's what we're doing, boom, 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 you know, all the way th through. So I, I assume that an area like this is one that we have room to, to grow in as a, as a church. Uh, having said that, you know, this is the way that I view our primary strategy is to equip parents and work through parents. And so I hope that just as your parents' patients have talked with you about these things, and I talk with my kid, I mean, it's dinner table conversation, it's reading Marty's book that is outstanding, read it to your kids, um, and, and, and have those kinds of, of conversations. Um, it's also the reason this needs to be a topic that we are addressing in, uh, in cross-culture and among the youth and why we look to give attention to it there. And then a lot of the impetus behind these renewing your mind teachings that we're doing, you know, it both encourages me to see some young people here, but I would love to, to see, and I'm hoping that the reach of these is even broader and serves as a tool to equip the next generation in how to think about these things and how to engage these issues in the public square, in the context that they're in, um, so that they can, can navigate these issues with with uh, grace and truth. And if there are any ideas on how we can be doing it better that any of you have, send them to me uh, so that I can consider them and benefit <coughs> from your input. One, yep. Let me answer this just on the Covenant Fellowship mm -hmm. side and then you feel free to speak with Risen Hope, uh, about Risen Hope. Um, one of the things uh, that we started to do, somebody can help me if you remember, I'm gonna guess eight years ago, somewhere around there, we started doing deep end sessions at youth camp where we would take an entire session that was previously reserved for teaching, and we just took questions from the kids that they had filed ahead of time. And we didn't know. It's not like, okay, here's our tra transgender. It was just, what questions do you have about the world you're living in? We were inundated with questions on this. And uh, most years, not every year, but most <coughs> years since, uh, we've, we've done this deep end session. And all that is, is we have a panel like this of pastors up front a room full of teens, and we're talking about these very things. And next year, we, we obviously didn't answer every question that could be answered this past year, because I'm sure next year there will be lots of questions on this topic, because this is where the kids are living. Um, but we've, we've done that now, I think it's about eight years or so, uh, at youth camp uh, to try to address this. Alex, what were you going to yeah. say? <clears throat> at Risen Hope, we, um, so this talk that I just gave, teaching um, came out of a parenting seminar I did. I did like, so, like, two 45-minute sessions, like an hour and a half, so I had to cut, back, cut it back a little bit, that I did three years ago with our parents, really for that reason, to equip parents to engage with you know, their children to, to understand uh, how to engage the culture. So, so, you know, <clears throat> so I don't know if you know, Marty might, perhaps he could do like a similar seminar to equip like Promise Kingdom Parents Cross Culture. And then uh, in Risen Hope, we are preaching through the <clears throat> the book of Genesis. So <clears throat> I preached a message on transgenderism because we were created in God's image. So just took one Sunday just to talk about this. 
So for the for the whole church, and that included, uh, you know, young folks and <clears throat> parents and uh, teens. If you've done the math, by the way, he said three years ago. Do the math. The world is in the throes of COVID. He's going after transgenderism and teaching about. So great job, home run over there, at Risen Hope. Uh, I'm going to end us at nine o'clock, just so if, if some of you are there saying, "When is this guy going to shut this thing down?" Um, but I'll take as many questions as we can till then. Uh, let's go, Sherry, and then Tom. All right, so the, it's a very complex answer to this because there's a lot to it, uh, but we're, which we're not going to get to most of it, but we'll hit it uh, as much as we can here. The question, if you didn't hear it, was uh, how do you respond to the connection that the LGBTQ community will make about their fight for equality and civil rights and, what, and the fight for civil rights in the 60s coming out of racial inequality and Jim Crow laws? Uh, that there's there's connection that's drawn to that uh, in their argument, and and you'll you'll hear that uh, politically as well, uh, trying to be made that this is a continuation of the righteousness, the rightness of the civil rights laws that have been passed for racial equality. Uh, why why not gender equality as well, Jared? <laughs> <laughs> My mind has gone a thousand places with this. I said it's very complex. What do you think, Rob? <laughs> Alex? Well, I think we, we want to help them understand that anytime, well, first of all, we need to treat all image bearers with dignity and respect. So anytime we see someone who is transgendered being disrespected or dishonored as an image bearer, we can, we, can, we can resonate with that. Like, we need to love our neighbor, right, as ourselves. So <clears throat> I think that's our starting place. You know, we're created, all created in the image of God. But then from there, though, we have to, we can't go with the revolution the rest of the way that, that in order to, uh, you know, respect and for equality purposes that we have to affirm the ideology. So, you know, and that, that's where we have to engage with them and help them to see that uh, these are two uh, completely different categories. One is one where, you know, people were being discriminated against just based on the color of their skin, you know, something that they can't change, something that is inherent to them as an image bearer. But on this side, you know, this is a rejection of how someone is being, how someone is created. It's a rejection of creation and nature of common sense, of biology. So, so, it's, uh, so we have to help people to see these are not the same. 
right? So, so on one hand, yes, we want to, you know, anytime we see injustice being done, perpetrated, right? Like, you know, we, we, can, we can have uh, indignation if, you know, if a transgender person is unjustly treated, right? If they are being denied their basic rights as a human being, right? If they're being bullied, right? If they're being harmed physically, like we stand up for any image bearer, but that, but we stop there and we acknowledge that, you know, there are asked, you know, that we can't go where the revolution goes because these are two different cats. Civil rights and transgender ideology are two completely different categories. Right, and what will happen, our reticence in answering the question, I think that is the fundamental answer to the question. It, it's that there's, as soon as you lift the lid on one of these topics, it starts to raise 10 questions, and, we won't, and maybe we need to have a whole renewing your mind just on that question alone. Be, it would be helpful to explore. Uh, the, the, the problem comes with the argument that they make is they find the areas of similarity in two things that are fundamentally different. There are similarities between us and dogs. And if, if, if you argued for, you know, anyone with two eyeballs should, should have the same rights, well then dogs would have to be included. But it's fundamentally, we're two fundamentally different creatures. These are two fundamentally different topics. As image bearers and, and, and what, what being an image bearer means is male and female as God has created us. And they're, they're, they're taking the similarities at the superficial level and trying to make a fundamental argument with them. Now the problem is, you're probably not going to convince them of that. But we need, to, we need to not see the ground that these things are the same when, we, when at, at a very fundamental level they're different. All right, Tom, I had already called on you. Last question publicly, and then afterwards we could take questions and, and talk all you guys want. Yes. Uh, so that was one of my questions that I had that I chose not to ask just for time, so I'm glad you came back to it. Can I just go first on that? Uh, what's that? Oh, yeah, let me repeat it. Uh, as, as, we tend, as we look to the future, does this trajectory that we're on perhaps naturally lead to a cultural acknowledgement that pedophilia is fine? Or that you mentioned bestiality. Alex had mentioned that in his. It, is, is that the logical track that we're on? Uh, and I, th I think absolutely it's the logical track that we're on because all rules are off. Who, am, who are you to tell me that, uh, that my sexual attraction to this, that, or the other thing is wrong? By what authority are you using that? We've already discounted God and his word. So by what authority are you tapping into to tell me that's wrong? We just haven't reached the cultural moment of that yet. So the thing... the. It's a very thin, fractured wall that's holding back that level of depravity in, in what we might sexually affirm in our culture. Because the thing that built that wall, the, the, the word of God and the, 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 the self-evidentiary creation, that's being 
discarded at the, at the logical level. So there's nothing holding that back other than the grace of God at this point. And so, yes, I think it makes sense that we'd say that is where we're headed should God not act. On that front, uh, historically, there's definitely precedent for the cultural affirmation of pedophilia. <coughs> Um, the, the, the issue for us is God is still alive and God, God may yet act. And though that is the, the moral momentum of our culture, that doesn't necessarily mean that's where we have to be or that we need to fear that day because God will still be God if the culture gives way there. But we have to engage that as though that's a feasible possibility. Because the, 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 the cultural uh, affirmation on, uh, is, is, all, is what held on same-sex marriage. You know, 50 years ago, it wouldn't have been accepted. What's moved? Well, they've removed, they've removed the limits of God's word, and therefore there is no actual authority to stop it from moving forward. So 50 years from now, who knows? But God's word doesn't change, and our convictions don't change, and our light in the darkness doesn't change. You guys want to add anything to that? Okay. I have a sense Jared is supposed to close our time with a comment. Could you also pray? Excellent. It, it relates to the it relates to the question. I have been in talking about the darkness of these times and what the future looks like. I have been living in the books of First Peter and the book of Revelation, and commend the same to you. There, there is a sense in which these times are unprecedented. There's another very real sense in which the church has been here before, uh, and that there is nothing new under the sun. And and the church of Christ is equipped to be faithful in the midst of incredible cultural decay and decline. There's a, a, a beautiful statement in Christ's letter to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3, where it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. In those seven letters to the churches, there are two that are most outwardly impressive and seemingly most influential. They're the ones that have no commendation and nothing but rebuke. There are two other churches that are weak, that are seemingly insignificant, uh, that don't have much of any cultural influence, and they're the ones that Christ has only commendation for. And it's to the church in Philadelphia that he says, I know that you have but little power. You're not influencing culture. You're not changing the city. You're not uh, having this massive influence on, on the world. He says, I know you have but little power. Yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Those are the marching orders that we have as a church. We are called to be faithful, and by the grace of God, we can do that come what may. So the task before us is not how do we make sure that culture and our nation doesn't go in this direction. Certainly we don't want it to go in that direction, but there's very little that we as a church can do to ensure that our nation doesn't go in a particular direction. What we can do is say no matter what happens in the future, we will be faithful to Christ and faithful to his word come what may. And so that's our desire. That's what this equipped us for so well. Alex, so thank you, brother, again for the teaching. Let's pray, all right? Father, we do ask for your spirit to empower us and to equip us in this area. We desire to walk in wisdom 
and we desire to be faithful to your truth and to speak the truth in love and with hearts of compassion to the world around us. And so would you equip us to that end? Lord, enable us to be faithful. Come what may, may you by your sovereign power equip us and guard us and sustain us and keep us until the end when Christ returns or when you call us home. May we be found as individual believers and as a church to be faithful uh, as we engage these issues and as we engage the world around us for your glory. I thank you for each one of these brothers and sisters here tonight. Uh, May this time together bear fruit for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alex, thank you for serving us so well, brother. Thanks, everyone.